Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yak Talk, Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov. And I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 23 on constipation and obstruction. So constipation is a much narrower and lower yield topic compared to diarrhea. Those, those puns were intended, Ben. <laughs> and uh, in general, having fewer bowel movements and straining to produce them have several causes and potential complications that we're going to cover in this episode. Then we're going to get into causes of what we like to call acute constipation, meaning motility issues of the gut, which cause rapid onset lack of a bowel movement. Specifically in this episode, we'll be covering small bowel obstruction, ileus, volvulus, and chronic constipation and some of their complications. So let's jump in. All right. So we're going to start with a 20-year-old male who comes into the office complaining of constipation ever since he was a child. His bowel movements are hard, lumpy, and only occur once every few days with straining. He also describes crampy abdominal pain, which only improves with stooling. He denies weight loss or vomiting. Vitals and exams are normal. What is the most likely cause of this individual's constipation, Yaakov? So this sounds a lot like irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. That's odd. Didn't we talk about IBS in our diarrhea lecture? We did indeed. Funny enough, IBS can cause either constipation or diarrhea or both. That is funny enough. Can you tell us a little bit more about IBS, Yaakov? Sure. So IBS is a functional disorder, although another term that's gaining popularity is a disorder of the gut-brain axis, because although there isn't a clear organic cause of the bowel abnormalities seen in IBS, we do think that higher pain processing seems to be at least partially responsible for the disease. What characterizes IBS is actually the abdominal pain that's either relieved or worsened by defecation. It can cause constipation, diarrhea, or a mixture of both, like we said. So what do we do for this patient who we believe has IBS? The first step would be trying a high fiber diet, which is almost always the first step in a patient with chronic constipation that's not secondary to another cause. Okay. Speaking of, let's say this patient had come in with a similar issue, but it had just started three months ago. He's wearing baggy clothes and complains that he feels overweight, even though his BMI is 18. What What would we be worried about then? Unfortunately, this sounds like a case of anorexia nervosa, which can cause constipation as well. So a patient with a low BMI and appearance anxiety or anxiety about how how they look, definitely concerning for a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. Before we move on to potential complications of chronic constipation, what are some other risk factors and causes? Obesity, sedentary lifestyle, and low fiber diets are the main lifestyle risk factors. Conditions such as diabetes, hypothyroidism, prior pelvic radiation, neurologic diseases, and really anything that affects gut motility also put the patient at risk. So with that, let's move on to another case exploring constipation and obstruction. So Ben, let's say we have an 80-year-old female with past medical history of dementia presenting with two days of fecal incontinence. Wait, Yaakov, I I thought this episode was about constipation. Patience, Ben. Patience. We'll get there. Anyway... So these two days of incontinence were preceded by eight months of constipation and straining with each bowel movement. The patient is mildly nauseous, but denies blood in the stool or fevers. So Ben, what complication of chronic constipation does this patient seem to be experiencing? Sounds like fecal impaction to me. And what gives you the idea that we're dealing with fecal impaction? So in someone with constipation, a large mass of feces can get stuck at the anal sphincter. 
Stool still forms behind that, but it becomes watery and slips out around the blockage, hence the incontinence. In general, if I see incontinence after a long time with constipation, I think impaction. Nice. And what do we do for this patient? Everyone's favorite bedside maneuver, fecal disimpaction. Ah, uh, yes. The famed fecal disimpaction. Can you give us a detailed description of that procedure, Ben, for the listeners and kind of walk us step by step? No, no, I cannot, nor will I. Okay. I, I think that's probably for the best anyway. Medicine is truly beautiful. Anyway, weird question, but what might we expect if we did a colonoscopy on that patient after her colon was cleared out? I see what you're getting at here. We'd likely see diverticulosis, both because of her age and her constipation. Great. And let's say she had come in with some blood when wiping after bowel movements. What are three causes we'd be worried about in that case? It depends if she had pain or not. Good point. So let's say she didn't have pain. What would we be worried about? Then we'd be thinking about internal hemorrhoids, which we mentioned in our lower GI bleed episode. Basically, hemorrhoids are dilated rectal veins, most commonly caused by constipation, which can leak blood when irritated during stooling. That's a great explanation. So let's say she did have pain with bleeding. How would that change what we're thinking about? So then there are two likely etiologies, either an anal fissure or external hemorrhoids, both of which cause painful bleeding, often in constipated individuals. Perfect. How do we manage both anal fissures and external hemorrhoids? Generally, conservatively, with a high-fiber diet, topical lidocaine, and nifedipine or nitroglycerin, as well as sitz baths. Only in severe cases is surgery necessary. Great. So let's move on to those acute causes of constipation. Okay. So now we have a 30-year-old male who has a past medical history of appendectomy, and he comes to the ED with green vomit and crampy abdominal pain for the past 12 hours. He also has not had a bowel movement in three days, and he has obstipation, meaning he is not able to pass gas. His vitals are normal, and physical exam is positive for a distended tympanic abdomen with hyperactive bowel sounds, but no rebound or rigidity. What does it sound like is going on with this patient? Unfortunately, it sounds like he has a small bowel obstruction or SBO. And what gives you that idea? It's a few things, but the vomiting, abdominal pain, and constipation all point to an obstructive process in general. And what's with this green vomit? The green vomit is describing bilious emesis because the blockage occurs after the duodenum. So bile has already been released into the GI uh, tract. And when nothing's coming out one end of the tube, pressure builds up and forces it out the other end. Where does the GI tract begin and where does it end? Wow, that, that's a great question, but I think that question is too deep for today's discussion, Ben. Before we accidentally start pondering the universe, why is it that this otherwise healthy 30-year-old got an SBO out of nowhere? So any abdominal surgery, even very common ones like appendectomies, such as in this patient that we saw, or even cholecystectomies, they put you at risk for developing a small bowel obstruction. Why is that? So the answer is adhesions. Essentially, when someone has surgery on their abdomen, these little strands of tissue can develop, which have the potential to actually press on the intestine and obstruct the flow through the GI tract. Yikes. What are some other potential causes of SBO? As my surgery attending once said, the top three causes of SBO are adhesions, adhesions, and adhesions. (laughs) Much less common causes are hernias, malignancies, and IBD. 
Are there any tests we can do to confirm that this is SBO? Usually a good old abdominal x-ray will do the trick. And that would show you dilated loops of small bowel with air fluid levels until a transition point. And after that transition point, there would be no air visible. The large bowel will always be collapsed. So look out for that on question stems. So let's say we get that imaging and it shows an SBO. What do we do for our patient? So since in the question stem, he does not have peritonitis or hemodynamic instability, we can call this uncomplicated SBO and manage conservatively with nasogastric suctioning, IV fluids, and making the patient NPO. Okay. Now let's say he comes back 20 years later. Well, 20 years. Does he have a family now and everything? No, but he's a very well-loved dog named Buster. Anyway, so the patient is 50 50 years old now. And he comes back to the ED with severe abdominal pain, bilious emesis, constipation, and obstipation. His vitals show a fever of 38.7 Celsius, heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 90 over 60, and abdominal exam shows tenderness to palpation in all four quadrants, slight rebound, distension, and tympany with hypoactive bowel sounds. What's going on now? So that was a lot of info, but what we can conclude is that this is a complicated SBO, but we're not exactly sure what the complication is. And how can we tell that this is complicated? Mainly the hemodynamic instability that you were describing, but also the rebound tenderness, which is a sign of peritonitis. And why are his bowel sounds different now? So nice catch. Uh, Usually the bowel sounds are hyperactive during an uncomplicated SBO. And that's because the intestines increase peristalsis when they sense all that backed up stool. But when there's a complication, which we'll get into, the intestines kind of conserve energy and stop working altogether. So you'll see hypoactive bowel sounds there. Great. So let's talk about what those complications could be. What are the two major ones that we worry about in SBO? One would be perforation and two would be ischemia or necrosis of the bowel. And what would labs usually show in complicated SBO and would it differ based on the complication? Actually, whether it's perforation or ischemia, there's a good chance you'd see leukocytosis and an anion gap metabolic acidosis due to lactic acid being released by those hypoperfused and or dying cells. And like in any perforation of the gut, you can also see elevations in lipase and amylase. What do we do for this patient with a complicated SBO? We would send them right to urgent surgical exploration. We would give IV fluids, suctioning, and analgesics while they wait for that surgery. Okay, before we move on from SBO, what's another cause of acute constipation and obstipation, which can present very similarly, generally in older individuals? So if you see those symptoms, but in an older individual, you always want to think about Ogilvy syndrome, aka colonic pseudo-obstruction. What causes that, and how would it present differently from an SBO? So usually due to electrolyte imbalances, medications, or neurologic disorders, You get this autonomic cholinergic dysfunction to the colon that causes inability to pass stool or gas without an actual obstruction there. But unlike an SBO, the large intestine is the primary insult here, but both the small and large bowels would be dilated on imaging. And what do we do for someone with Ogilvy syndrome? Like an uncomplicated SBO, we would use NG tube, IV fluids, and make the patient NPO. But if they don't improve after two days, then we'd give neostigmine, actually, to stimulate the cholinergic drive towards peristalsis. Great. And I love that early farm review. Nothing like hearing neostigmine in conversation. Agreed. 
let's move on to some more causes of acute lack of pooping ability. Nice. I like that, that uh, rephrasing of constipation, acute lack of pooping. That's good. Thank you. It took me a long time to think about that. Yeah, no, it, it's nuanced. It's complex. I like it. So our next case, we have a 50 year old female. She's been in the hospital for three days since she had an abdominal hysterectomy. She was feeling fine until she had her first real food, after which she started getting nauseous and had an episode of vomiting. She also noticed she hasn't had a bowel movement or passed gas since the surgery. Her vitals are normal, and her abdominal exam reveals tympany, distension, and decreased bowel sounds. I know this sounds very similar to our last case. So Ben, what's causing her acute lack of a bowel movement here, and what's different in this case? Sounds like a case of paralytic ileus. There are only subtle differences in her history from SBO, the main one being hypoactive bowel sounds instead of hyperactive. Nice. So what exactly is ileus? Ileus is basically just hypomotility of the lower GI system, causing acute constipation and obstipation. Before we do any more testing, why is it much, much more likely that we're dealing with an ileus here rather than small bowel obstruction? The most common cause of ileus is recent surgery, as in within the past few days, whereas adhesions causing SBO take months or even years to develop. So this patient who just had abdominal surgery three days ago is much more likely to have ileus. Nice. And what is it about surgery that causes ileus? It's a mixture of things, but sympathetic activation and opioid analgesics are the main culprits. Great. What would we see on imaging for a patient with ileus? Everything in the lower GI and even often the stomach will be filled with air and dilated all the way down to the rectum with no transition point. And what do we do for a patient with ileus? We would stop opioids for one, give them antiemetics, and keep them NPO while performing serial abdominal exams. That's the way they love to phrase it on the test. Absolutely. And what is one final cause of acute constipation, which they like to test on, but isn't high yield enough to earn its own case? By process of elimination, volvulus. Yep, that's exactly right. So Ben, what is a volvulus? When a part of the colon gets twisted around the mesentery and becomes blocked off. Great. Where in the colon will we usually see volvulus? The sigmoid colon. And the second most common place is the cecum. Great. And how does a sigmoid volvulus typically present? Extremely similarly to an SBO, except the patient doesn't need any of the SBO risk factors and will generally be an elderly individual. The test writers will always give you an x-ray, which has the characteristic upside down U or coffee bean shaped colon, which is extremely dilated. And that will help you get the diagnosis. Perfect. What do we do for a patient with a sigmoid volvulus? A flexible sigmoidoscopy, which can both confirm the diagnosis and be used therapeutically to literally untwist the colon. That's pretty cool. And finally, how does cecal volvulus differ from a sigmoid volvulus? Cecal volvulus usually occurs in younger or middle-aged patients. It will often cause on and off obstruction, and it actually requires emergency surgery to remove the twisted segment completely. And with that, that wraps up our very surgery-filled episode on constipation and obstruction. Hopefully your brain's not too backed up by all this knowledge. Oh God. Oh God. And I hope we don't have to disimpact our listeners either. Anyway, anyway, we'll see y'all in the next one. And thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 